Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, our topic is experience as a theological source or method or criterion of judgment. And let's just say straight up front, we are not going to solve this problem. This is one of the most intractable and difficult topics in theology because basically experience is everything, (laughs) including (laughs) everything that we have talked about so far. I even often make the argument for people that scripture is a record of the experience of the people of Israel and then the disciples and apostles with Jesus, and then it becomes scripture. And then somehow their experience as written down as scripture becomes normative for us. Boy, that is a lot of unexamined assumptions. So <laughs> yes, I think you're you hit the nail on the head. Experience is everything, at least for human beings, everything that we can possibly articulate, talk about, cognize, theorize. It's all based in experience. And what is the relationship of of uh, faith that comes by the hearing of the gospel to experience? Uh, this is a whole hornet's nest of problems, as as we'll get into and talk about, I think. I think we're going to be stung many times in the process by these <laughs> hornets, but we'll do the best we can in an hour. <laughs> no, we're going to be stung by the shramari, the, 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 <laughs> the swarm of bees that will be chasing us all through the episode. All right. What a great set of metaphors to start off this episode. So, well, of course, Lutheran theologians are infamous for despising experience and distrusting it as a theological source, as we will see before long that that is um, a little bit of an oversimplification. But I think what we're going to try to do here is try to get a little precise, more precise about what exactly we mean when we talk about experience as something that is used or employed or engaged within theology, but also... um, what our critique of it is in a more specific way than just to generalize, no, no, experience is not one of our criteria. So I think the best way to get into that actually is to start from another Christian tradition that has a much more apparently happy relationship and affirming relationship to experience as a source in theology, and that is the Methodist tradition. There is this thing called the Methodist quadrilateral of scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. I'm guessing those are rank ordered. Uh, But those four things are all openly affirmed as sources of knowledge of God in the Christian theological task. This is one of those things that just kind of gets tossed around and you know, I've heard people say casually, oh, yeah, I like it that the Methodist quadrilateral includes experience or like, no, 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 you can't have experience. Um, so I just out of curiosity, I, I Googled <laughs> the, the quadrilateral and a definition I found on a Methodist church's website very briefly said this. Methodism particularly stresses the importance of our own experience of God's grace working in our lives. We gain wisdom and maturity from life experience, especially when we pray and reflect about our story with other Christians. And you know, on face value, Dad, like, what's wrong with that? What can you possibly not like about that? Except for when, say, you don't experience God's grace working in your life, or <laughs> you meet Christians who are not wise and are totally immature, or who, because they are old and wise and mature, therefore hold younger, struggling people in contempt. And, you know, what if prayer with other Christians um, happens in a congregation that blows up in your face? So what do you do with that experience? Yeah, that's right. You, there's got to be some sorting out here 
of experience. Uh, I'm so happy that you cited the Methodist tradition here because many, many moons ago, when I arrived at Union Theological Seminary in New York, I was assigned a doctoral advisor who was a Methodist by name Tom Driver. And uh, he published a book called Patterns of Grace, subtitle Human Experience as Word of God. And I'd like to read a citation from this book and then go on to relate my experience of Tom Driver. How's that sound? <laughs> Sounds so meta, Dad, but not in the Facebook way. Okay, go on. Okay, here's the quote. All my experience is word of God for me. I mean the dirt, the pain, the confusion, the courage, the flinching, the growth, the dying, the hope, the despair, the church, the brothel, the he, the she, the dark, the light, the yes, the no, the pattern, and the mess. I mean the liberation and the prison. I mean the heroine, no less than the poppy in the field. If I do not mean that, I do not mean the cross as I mean the lilies of the field. End quote. Oh my God, that is so 1970s. Ugh, it just makes me <laughs> cringe all over. Okay, go Yes, on. but in a way, you know, you know, I actually like this quotation. It's probably the only passage in the book that I really liked. Uh, <laughs> Because uh, it's part, as he says in the end, it's his way of appropriating uh, Luther's early theology of the cross. Uh, we have to know God and Christ crucified, and that means experientially in the believer's own sufferings and penalties. The, the, believer, the believer is incorporated into the cross of Christ personally and experientially. The early Luther loved the mystical theology that he thought he had found. He published a book in 1516 on, on the German mystical theology. And he said, I've learned more about life with God from these books than I have from all the scholastics combined. And so there is already in the early Luther, and it continues past the early stage of the theology of the cross, where Luther is continually emphasizing the experience of grace, <laughs> that, that when you hear the gospel, it delights the inner man and feeds the inner person and, and delights the soul. And uh, it's a living, mighty, powerful thing. It soars over all obstacles. It exalts the soul to God in faith and in the, to the neighbor in love. How can you divorce the theology of the reformer Luther from experience, I ask? I'm not doing that, but this driver quote seems to me like the most disgusting kind of self-indulgence as well as the undifferentiated embrace of everything and not in like the mature Methodist way of saying like they intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. But it just, I, I don't know, may, maybe it's my later position generationally, dad, but all I see of this is a big fat pose and um, I, I can't take any of it at face value. But you know what? That's my experience of people who talk like that. <laughs> so <laughs> so my, well, my experience renders me incapable of even trusting the person who talks that way? I, I hear you, girl. Because uh, <laughs> what was what, what this book was famous for was uh, him writing about 
exploring his um, certain parts of his body in the bathtub. And at, in the 1970s, this was regarded as, you know, really cutting edge and libera liberating and all this kind of stuff. And, of course, uh, that was kind of the scandal around the book. Um, but my own experience of Tom Driver was that he almost destroyed my career before it started. So, you know, <laughs> I guess I could say that when I all my experience is word of God and my experience of Tom Driver was exactly the... Um, the heroine rather than the poppies in the field. But uh, I, I, I'm, I'm getting a little more personal than I'm comfortable with. Um, so let's, let's move on from there. There is a kind of degenerate pietism that Gerhard Ferdy put his finger on, and that's kind of what Driver's kind of Methodism is. And I think your, your reaction is kind of uh, spot on. That's interesting. Degenerate pietism. I think that like is America right there. <laughs> we're, all, we're all degenerate pietists. Okay. Well, so our experience is that um, even father-daughter podcasting teams should not engage in too much self-disclosure in this weird medium of sending out audio into the ether. So we will spend no more time with heroin or brothels and people who <laughs> explore themselves in the bathtub, but move right along to the safer ground of our dear Martin Luther. So again, um, I think the, the point here to say is to pick up on your observation that although sort of famously Luther Luther is against experience. That is a far too imprecise way of putting it because he does talk glowingly, lovingly of what will actually happen, of what you will experience when you truly grasp the grace of God. And, you know, it, it's so funny that we, we always talk about Luther's against experience. And then we love to talk about the tower experience, you know, <laughs> where, <laughs> where Luther's been hammering on the pages of Romans, trying to understand it. And then possibly in the bathroom, which I don't know, maybe that's slightly better than the bathtub. He uh, has this breakthrough <laughs> where where he gets it finally that the righteousness of God is not something that we achieve and offer to God, but what God bestows upon us through Jesus Christ. So you know our origin story in a way is an experiential breakthrough. So that's just one of many ways we uh, contradict this this um, assumption that Luther is just anti-experience where theology is concerned. Right. Um I don't want to get down in the weeds on scholarly Luther uh, stuff, you know, but there's some of that narrative of the term, Herr Leibniz, the Tower experience, has been discredited in recent scholarship, and the invention of this narrative uh, has been traced to the uh, Luther Renaissance's effort uh, to um, reestablish Lutheran theology on the experience of Martin Luther's experience, <laughs> if I can put it that way, but let, let's not let's not dwell on that. Let's let's deal with the mature theology of Luther. Okay, I, I mean, I had heard those doubts too. There is there is a passage you can look at, but maybe it was overdeveloped. But that is that is interesting. If if this was somehow a correction to a felt lack of experience or a need to access Luther's experience, and of course, you know, I think it's really important to say that anyone who's Lutheran who grew up not in Luther's own generation, but anyone after, is by definition not going to experience 
experience what Luther did, cannot experience what Luther did. I think most Lutheran pastors find that Luther's experience is far more relevant to people who are wounded by other spiritual traditions and find their way into our churches. We have a tend to have a very different set of, of pastoral challenges, spiritual challenges for people who grew up within what Lutheranism became rather than... Um, something more like Luther himself experienced. So that itself is an interesting uh, um, dilemma. But let's, let's, let's go through the possibilities, Sarah, of what experience can mean theologically. I think very simply we can begin with this observation that for Lutheran theology, experience is the product of the word and the sacraments, not the source of theological reflection. Okay, so... Yes, <laughs> this is going to be a problem. I'm going to every every single thing, every single assertion we make is going to need a correction. So I think we can say something like, even Lutheranism, or the you know the church um, that is oriented around Luther's theology, desires believers to experience something as the goal of their um, having the gospel brought to bear on their lives. Right, but. Right. And and then that itself can become a topic for contemplation and reflection and possibly even even extracting more theological data out of. But I'm I'm guessing that the problem is much more about experience itself as the source for talking about God at all. So for example, I once knew somebody, not well, I just it was like this one kind of random conversation with somebody who told me, and, and I think a friend was with me, that he was just deeply, profoundly convinced that God did not love him and that he was not one of the elect and he would not be saved. And he said, I know, I know people tell me that, you know, I should read Luther and I have, you know, and I and understand what double predestination is and isn't, but I just can't shake this deep feeling in my bones that I'm not one of the elect. And, you know, we tried to talk him out of it. It didn't work. <laughs> so... So, but I mean, that that is a genuine experience people bring even to the good news. And I think we would rightly say that is the devil talking, not God. But I mean, so what? So what if I say that, that's the devil talking, not God, if the experience is profound and unshakable of being unloved and unelect? Yeah, well, I think that's exactly the pastoral challenge to face up to. to um, I think situations such as you describe perhaps are more uh, prevalent than than we recognize because we still manage at least in the middle class circles that are active in the church and there's a real class bias here in our selection that that uh, kind of filters the experiential data if I may put it that way um, the 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 there's a lot more of that deep bone deep despair underneath the civil service surface. Uh, of people's religious lives than we recognize. And if we could actually start talking again about the experience of feeling rejected, of being uh, unchosen, excluded, left out, not simply in human social and sociological categories, but theologically, the experience of Jesus on the cross in the cry of dereliction, I think we would actually be making contact uh, with where people are really at in this predatory social reality in which we live and move and have our being these days. 
Yeah, that's a great point. But here, let me immediately complicate it again, because that's all we're going to do in this episode. I have also met some um, pious Lutherans who are well-educated about the faith, who are, um, you know, have told me about how, you know, they, they got it. They had their own sort of breakthrough to being beloved and chosen by God and to live freely in grace and the freedom of a Christian and all that. And um, I have a couple people in mind who were just the most obnoxious SOBs I ever knew and just <laughs> absolutely full of themselves and really unpleasant and did not treat other people well and felt, as far as I could tell, completely blessed and affirmed by this because they were justified by faith and not by works. Um, or, and I'm, I'm, these were people who were who were too smart not to like grasp intellectually these issues. So like they got it intellectually, and I'm you know on some level they must have gotten it in their. I mean I didn't know the whole story of their lives or whatever, but um, I, I think this would be the uh, the problem of the. Um, inadequately transformed new person brought forth by Christ. And and so again, I mean that's that's um an experiential certainty and a positive one that appears to affirm the gospel, but then, you know, my experience of the fruits of that transformation is at odds with it. And I think that's kind of the logical opposite of the person who no matter how much gospel is preached is convinced that they're condemned. Well, I think in either case, Sarah, don't you have the problem of um, the reflexive problem of uh, having an experience, but then making the experience the object of your attention? That's what I mean by reflexive, that it's uh, the experience becomes self-reflexive. And so that rather than keeping the focus outside of the self on the promised Christ who comes mercifully to embrace in the joyful exchange, rather than keeping the focus, the attention there, one begins to look inward and in memory of that wonderful or terrible feeling or experience, and then that becomes the object of one's concern. And I think that's the problem with using experience ever as a source because experience is nothing but a product of the present Christ who comes in mercy to embrace in the joyful exchange. That's the experience of the, com- the Christ who comes into our midst through word and sacrament. And if you ever turn that into something that I possess in my own interiority, it's either going to be an illusion or uh, so fleeting as to disappear upon examination. Yeah, I see that. But I, I mean, I can also see that, you know, if at some, uh, you know, okay, so here's another example. Andrew talked, my husband talked about in the sort of um, evangelical church that he grew up in, it was Presbyter- Presbyterian, but sort of more like West Coast evangelical, that there were continual invitations to give your life to Christ. <laughs> and at some point he was like, but I have now what? And so, you know, the the problem is that like even even what you said there, Dad, as a critique. I mean, theologically, I don't agree with it, or even spiritually. But if if someone say in the, that second case I gave, you know, had this experience of like a breakthrough, understanding, transformation of the 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 gospel of Christ for oneself, um, and then proceeded to be an obnoxious person the rest of his life. I mean, what's 
what's missing? Are they supposed to continually call into question? Well, I felt that that Christ saved me and set me right. But every day, am I supposed to radically call that experience of belonging to Christ into question in order for the you know law to come back with enough force upon me in order to, to uh, hem in my obnoxiousness? You see what I mean? Well, yeah, I do see what you mean. But I think the problem here again is introspection, and it takes the form of, of what it was called in medieval theology, habitus, comes into English as habit, but it's simply the Latin perfect for having something, possessing something. And, and, and so the obnoxious born-again believer that you're talking about has the illusion that they possess they're being born again once and for all, and it's something that can never be taken away from them. They've crossed that bridge. My goodness, they're practically already living in heaven. They've got all that pilgrimage behind them, and all they can do is look back and look down at those who haven't come as far as them. And if they're having any doubts about that, they just look at themselves and remember that precious experience which gave them this privileged position. Now, what's not happening there? What's not happening there is ongoing encounter through word and sacrament with the risen Jesus Christ, who is Lord of the believer, and who is quite willing to be against the believer, sometimes ultimately to be for the, for the believer. That means the law as well as the gospel, right? That's, the how, you, that's, how, you, that's how you parse Christian experience. Uh, with uh, in the light, it's always the experience of the risen Jesus Christ coming with his cross to lay it upon the believer in order that the believer can lay her or his sins upon Christ and receive in its place his righteousness. That's what we're talking about with extrospection, looking outside of yourself rather than inside of yourself and not treating even your Christian baptism or your being born again as some kind of habitus, some kind of personal possession that you can now take for granted. Yeah, see, I, I get that. And I imagine that this is like the the medieval piety that Luther was struggling with early on, which was exactly trying to deny certainty and um uh in stasis almost like a kind of hedonism and so but you know in luther's really early writings what he's arguing so strongly against is this well you can just never be sure you know you hope that you've confessed everything and you hope god has forgiven you everything but you never know and that was considered spiritually important to prevent people from getting proud but then for someone like luther it went in the opposite directions like i cannot trust a god who is not reliably there for me. So I have a feeling we could just keep going on forever, you know, pitting one experience of one sort of a, a spiritual problem against another, and it's just going to, um, yes, right. I'm going to Because stop. experience is everything, but the, you have to, right. you, again, sorry, you have to test the spirits. You, you can't wrap this all up in a neat package, but you can have, I think, a basic principle that Christian experience, properly Christian experience, is the experience of the Christ who comes in mercy for the sinner, purely out of grace, and lays claim to the sinner uh, through uh, that is effective through the mortification and vivification, the 
dying with Christ and rising with Christ that takes place as the Holy Spirit progressively sanctifies the believer. Uh, that's Christian experience. If you want to, that that's how Christian experience happens, and and we'll we'll bring all sorts of confusions and muddles into that discussion. But you need a pastor or a spiritual advisor or a fellow Christian who can speak outside of your own head to help you sort out the interpret proper interpretation of your own spiritual experience. Yes, right. It still begs the question of how we know that is the experience that you're supposed to have and then how far you push uh, getting people to have the experiences they have since we just talked about revivalism, <laughs> you know, like, are you supposed to push everyone onto the anxious bench to make sure that they really have that cathartic experience of grace? I know you're not going to say yes to that, but I think what is very clear is that there is a continuum of problems here. If, if e I guess I came into the, already in this conversation a few minutes ago thinking that we could solve most of the problems by talking about Christian experience as goal rather than source. But now it is clearer to me than ever how incredibly problematic the goal is as well. And we haven't even touched the question of how do, where, where is the source by which we um, even can claim that this is the experience that we ought to have. But now, but wait, a minute, we, wait a minute. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> First of all, I'd like to say everything I'm saying about Luther and properly Lutheran theology is not the ordinary experience even in Lutheran churches today, okay? Right, yeah. I know, <laughs> I, I said like that. To... I said that. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I don't think uh, very often uh, pastors are trained to or equipped to be these kinds of spiritual uh, uh, counselors to people. Uh, and you know, they end up with the platitudes of the culture one way or the other, rather than being physicians of the soul, uh, which is, you know, uh, really what their what their what their calling should make them. Um, and and so I, I I don't think we can take for granted that uh, denominations nominally d named after Luther have very much to do with the genuine understanding of Luther's theology and its implications for pastoral practice at all. That sounds like it's spoken from deep personal experience, Dad. You know, Sarah, uh, it, it really uh, is very depressing for me, uh, uh, but that's true. That has been my experience of denominational Lutheranism, yes. All right. Well, that just took a turn for the the dark. Um, all right. Let's let's try to wrangle <laughs> this topic again that keeps getting away from us both, because uh, I think we're both trying to say everything, which of course is the problem, because experience is everything. Let's let's just stick in a few more comments about Luther and how he dealt with experience. So, just a, a couple things I would like to lift up. The first is that. Um, you already mentioned the freedom of a Christian where Luther talks so powerfully about the delight and joy and release one should feel upon truly understanding what is given in the gospel. Um, but he also, uh, again, this is fairly early in his career, he, he makes the offhanded remark, one does not become a theologian by reading books, but by dying and being damned. I bet D Tom Driver would have liked that. Um, I don't know, though, again, though, how much you can, um, you can push that as a... a, a 
uh, normative principle that until you have experienced dying and being damned, you you can't possibly know the gospel truly. And again, the the um, the logical problem I I have never felt. Um, dead or damned in God's gaze before because I have heard the gospel as long as I can remember. So if I had to achieve that feeling, I mean, I've had other, you know, bad and dark feelings, spiritually speaking, um, extended spell of unbelief, uh, unwilling unbelief in graduate school, but not not this, I don't think, that what Luther is talking about. Yes, but here again, too, we're talking about achieving feelings uh, one way or the other. And I think that's exactly the wrong track to be on. It's not a matter of achieving feelings. It's a matter of interpreting the feelings that you actually have. Uh, the, the presupposition of the whole thing is, as Driver said, and I agree with this, all of our experience is experience of God. God as creator, God as hidden, God as revealed, God as redeemer, God as... Uh, um, uh, the, the spirit sanctifying by mortifying and vivifying. All our experience is experience of God, if in God, if in fact God is the creator of all that is not God. So again, experience is everything, God is everything. <laughs> you know, and in that uh, a blanket statement, of course, it's urgent for us to test the spirits, to know how to interpret our experience. That you know that I I just think that All right, well, most, then I, I think most of us I think are that, that we have to make a di- <laughs> I think we have to make a distinction there because you're what you're arguing against is is people absolutizing their feelings, but experience is. I mean, a huge part of experience is simply what we feel. And we can make interpretation of those feelings also part of our experience. But I think those are two very separate kinds of things. And then to make experience simply equivalent to God, you know, I, I don't think I can go there, Dad. Well, then I then forgive me, but I'm going to accuse you of being a Platonist. <laughs> Because that's exactly the ultimate what, insult. Well, that's what Plato said in the Republic. Don't say any bad things about God. Only say good things about God. Now, of course, if you follow Plato, then most human experience is not theological. It's not. It has nothing to do with God, and that's exactly why God seems so doggone ghostly to most people because they don't realize that all experience is in some fashion experience of God. If God is in fact, as Christian faith believes, the creator of everything that is not God, that includes all of our experience, no? I mean, at this point, you have to bring in so many theological qualifications so that you don't simply say, you know, um, rape is an experience of God, you know, or um, somebody constantly um, messing with your minds and abusing you and being buried alive in an avalanche. So, I mean, I I, I can understand like the, the long chain of, you know, God sets in motion and is present to a creation that is capable of these kind of things happening. I guess I just don't understand how you distinguish that from, you know, God is the, I don't know, maker of all possibilities, but not the chooser of all choices. I, I, I guess I don't think anything is helped or achieved by the, the, the blanket statement of making that all experience is experience of God. 
But maybe, I don't know, I think you must be trying to defend something that I am not seeing or feeling in my own experience. So try again. Yeah, what I'm deeply worried about is is Plato and idealism, that most Christians uh, today theologically deal with the problem of theodicy that you're talking about. You know, where is the justice of God when I've been raped? Where is the justice of God when I'm sent to the gas chamber? Where is, et cetera, et cetera, right? Those are, those are the huge ones. And we can talk about all the lesser injustices and, and, and crosses that we encounter every day in life, the heroine as well as the lilies of the field, right? We can talk about all that. But the, the, the problem of the hiddenness of God, the hiddenness of God's justice, the God who is absolutely the source of everything that happens seems to be very a very, very dark God. I agree with that. I think that's exactly right. The usual dodge is to turn God into the idea of the good. And that dodge goes all the way back to Plato. It's the dodge that is in, in, in code, encoded in all forms of theological idealism. And I think what I'm urgently arguing here is that if we want to recover the reality of God in our understanding and talk, we've got to utterly renounce theological idealism. Okay, I think I see a little more what's at stake for you there. So then I guess the the pushback would be, then let's follow out Luther here, is that Luther makes these these arguments for, for God who works death and life and all in all, um, who has a distinct and true message in the gospel, and yet we experience him uh, if, he, if he is the maker of all things and all these dark ways. And then at a certain point in Luther's career, he starts encountering, you know, the Zwickau prophets and the spiritualists and the enthusiasts. And like you said, the Schwermerei, the swarms of those who have swallowed the Holy Spirit feathers and all, and basically are taking experiences they have had of God, which as, I mean, I'm 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 twitting you a bit here, Dad, but it must have been experience of God because it was experience. Um, but Luther said <laughs> said said no, that is a no go. Your experience has no claim on us, um, especially the the Zwickau prophets who did not any longer need scripture or the church's teaching, but could have immediate experience of God and therefore interpret it directly for others. And that is basically the point at which Luther gets very badly spooked by. Um, appeals to experience as um, a source and norm for Christian teaching. Though, again, that's not uncomplicated because, as I've mentioned many times, how much I love his Genesis lectures and what they really are, I would say, is an extended meditation on the human experience of God in all aspects of life, which maybe is your concern. So so you tell us, how do you sort out um, your, you know, probably accurate and well, and um, truthful tirade against Christian idealism with the problem of the Schwermerei and uh, not not just the Odyssey, but also Schwermerei and making shit up, sorry, and making stuff up and calling it God <laughs> and further imposing it on others as mandatory. Right. Very good. Okay. Now, because now I think we're really getting down to brass tacks and, and we're, we're where some distinctions make a difference. Really, distinctions make a difference. They are not distinctions without a difference, but decisive distinctions. And that would be this. 
The reason why experience, carte blanche, can never be the source of theology is that it will lead you into the deep, dark pit of the hidden God, and you will be lost there in endless objections, questions, confusions, and darkness. And among those endless confusions and darkness are the illusions of mystical experiences in which you feel that you have fresh revelations from God, which can be particularly uh, violent uh, fantasies, as it was not the Zwickau prophets originally, but it was Thomas Munzer who fell under their influence and then agitated the peasants uh, with an apocalyptic promise that if they revolted, the angels of heaven would come to their defense. So he led the masses into, into a, a, a bloodbath at the hands of the bloodthirsty princes. And all of this Luther was watching happen in real time right in front of him. So the question about testing the spirits is an instruction. Yes, it is true that everything comes from God, the good, the bad, and the indifferent. But when you look at your experience as a source of theology, it is an abyss in which you will fall and become lost for sure. And therefore, the only spirit that Christians are to heed is the spirit of Jesus Christ and his Father. That's the test, to see whether the spirit is is identifiable uh, as the spirit of Jesus Christ and his Father. And if you don't make that test, you fall victim to all the illusions and delusions and fantasies of exploring the hidden God. Okay, so several lines coming out of that. Let me try to be orderly about them in this very unwieldy conversation we're having. So first of all, the hidden God and the God of the gospel, are they the same God? Are we talking about the same ontological entity? I know you don't like those kind of words, but... Yes, yes, we are. We're talking about the same God, the same God who reveals himself, but also hides himself. Yes. Okay. So then when we as Christians take our morass of experience, as you said, good, bad, and indifferent, and we simply have it. It simply is a fact that we have the experience that each of us has that is unique to each of us for all the things we hold in common. Then the problem is we interpret that experience to try to make sense of it. And right. so so what Luther is trying to say is the only way basically you will survive this encounter with both God and life itself and all of its experiences is if you strictly interpret your experience through the God who is shown in the gospel and not through any other attempts to access God's will or ways or intentions. Exactly. <laughs> you make it sound like it's so easy. <laughs> well, it's it's easy to say it, but it, to live that way is not easy, of course. 
Okay, but then, but then you're still stuck with the problem of how how do those my experience and and I don't mean this in an overdetermined way, but if my experience is that there is both this hidden God and then this God of the gospel, at some point it begs the question: Are they the same, and can they possibly be the same? And what am I to do with that? Are we so? Do we just give the end of the bondage of the will answer in the light of glory? It will all make sense. Just don't go there right now. I mean, that might be the best answer. No, I think we can. We have to say something a little bit more. It's true that in the treatise Bondage of the Will, which should be translated on bound choice, by the way, uh, it's true that in that treatise, uh, Luther gets into some very provocative rhetoric, which practically amounts to a dualism between the hidden God and the revealed God. He says, you know, the revealed God is bound to his word, and his word is incarnate in Jesus Christ. And then he defines the hidden God as the one who's free from his own word, who's not bound to his word, but free over his word. Now, how do you take a distinction like that? I think that Luther is actually flirting with the Arian heresy. If you say that the Father, the God is not bound to his word, you're saying that the Father is not bound to his Son. That's Arianism. And I think you can kind of take it this way and say that Luther is saying, if you don't know God in Christ, yes, you will begin to think of God like an Arian, and you will fall into the same hole that Arius fell into, right? Um, in which the uh, Christ becomes a model for us to imitate ra rather than the savior of lost and dying humanity. Okay, so that that's, that's one thing. But um, Robert Kolb, in his wonderful book, which he titled Unbound Choice, points to a passage in the Genesis commentary that Luther composed some years later, in which he cleared up exactly this confusion and affirmed that there is no other God than the God of the Lord Jesus Christ, period. So there is no ultimate ontological dualism. It's a dualism in God's relating himself to humanity as hidden and revealed. It's a duality, I should say, not a dualism. It's a duality between God hidden and revealed uh, and ultimately the light of nature, the light of grace, and then their resolution and the light of glory. But that, of course, isn't then and it's an act of faith in the light of grace to so interpret one's experience in the light of nature. And I think Oswald Beyer is very good on this. He says, uh, with this question of theodicy, what do we do with our experiences as victims of evil? He said, there's a kind of experience of evil that is recognized in all cultures as lex talionis, as uh, karma, as the law of retrib retribution. As you sow, so shall you reap, the apostle says, right? And that is, I can, if I get cancer, lung cancer, and die of lung cancer, I know that my years of smoking cigarettes had something to do with it. And I'm sowing, I'm reaping what I have sown. That's suffering that I can make morally intelligible. 
as a consequence of my own foolish and sinful activities. So that's one kind of way of interpreting negative experience. But there's another kind of negative experience, uh, Bayer says, for Luther, I think he's right about this, which are just attacks of utter chaos that have one we can make no rhyme or reason out of them. They're just assaults uh, on us that, that make no sense at all. Uh, and these are how uh, Bayer kind of wants to classify the role of the demonic, uh, uh, not, not a punishment that is morally proportionate uh, to uh, to a, a crime or an injury that I've inflicted, right? But just totally out of proportion, utterly arbitrary, you know. And he, I think, Bayer, when he wrote about that, was talking about his own uh, dear wife's uh, premature death from cancer, which hit her out of the blue, and it was a very painful experience for him. So I think, you know, th those are at least two ways of talking about the negative experience of God. And Byers says uh, we can't make sense out of the demonic assault. We, we can only say th uh, that uh, the gospel has promised Christ's final triumph over the powers of sin and death and the devil. And, uh, and in the meantime, we are here in the midst of the fog and friction of battle. Uh, and we have that hope, but we don't see how it resolves. Okay, then I think it would be easy to completely divert from here to theodicy, but um, which is ultimately like everyone's one and only spiritual question. Let's save that for another time, though. So I think what I'm getting out of this is that the question for us that's much more urgent is the question of how to both form people's experiences through the ministry of the church and then to help people through that ministry interpret all of their experiences and that the way we solve the the mixture of the good, bad, and different is not by sidelining God from it, but acknowledging this aporia that is called the demonic, um, as well as maybe, um, however well-deserved, nevertheless, heavy-handed judgment of the natural consequences of things in the world that God has created and sustains. So does that sound right so far? Yeah. Okay. Then, okay. Then I think what we should do in the time that's left <laughs> is maybe just come back to this, this question of interpretation of experience. At this point, I think we're just going to grant experience is everything and exp all experience somehow has something to do with God. That's, that's, that's so tautological as to be almost uninteresting, actually. So the question, the question then is what to do with that and how to interpret it. And, and maybe simply the observation that everybody is always interpreting experience and there will be lots of ways of doing it. So the intervention of the Christian ministry is to uh, advise and urge interpretation according to the gospel, not by some other way. And we're just going to have to sideline the question of how we even know that the gospel is the right way to, to, to <laughs> interpret our experience. <laughs> All right. That Okay. <laughs> Sure, yeah. Okay. Well, I, I would just like to mention here briefly, I thought we would have more time, but we're not. Um, just just two uh, um, 
studies on this question from two uh, Anglican friends of the podcast and podcasters. Um, one is an essay on Christian theological experience specifically by my my beloved and honored Dr. Mutter, Ellen Cherry. Um, and what I, uh, I'll, I'll put a link to it in the um, the show notes, but what I particularly liked about this is her, her strong assertion of linking experience itself to the entire Christian tradition and and how it forms people. Um, it's it's so easy to come to the question of experience and theology and make it somehow like experience is this free-floating thing, and then you have to kind of shoehorn it into Christianity, whereas she makes the the argument that it um, the church itself is constantly always working to take all the experience of pe- of people and form them so that actually your experience reading scripture actually is real experience in your life as well as experience of God. And your experience in prayer is actual real experience. It's something you have to do something with that you have to interpret. Well, I think that's now we're on the right track. I think with the idea that a, a Christian theological experience is the experience that is mediated by the word, the sacraments, uh, the tradition, the uh, fellowship of the church, the liturgy, the um, uh, practices of meditation, asceticism, discipleship, uh, service uh, to the the poor and the hungry, uh, advocacy for justice. All of these are practices of Christianity, which are productive of Christian experience. That sounds to me exactly right. Go on with what your Dr. Mutter had to say about this. (laughs) The the thing I like about her argument is is that she says, in a way, actually, the whole purpose of the ministry is to and is to internalize and personalize all the doctrines and practices of the church that it isn't simply to assert them as out there and you are you know you're supposed to believe them or not but actually to make them experientially real and again i think this gets us now to the you know the continuum of problems of of how hard you push or how high you set the bar of what you are supposed to experience and that can be problematic but i think i joked in a previous episode about the the kind of of a priest or pastor who is so opposed to Christian experience as, you know, feelings being misleading that they want you to experience absolutely nothing whatsoever <laughs> in your religious life, right? And and so again I, I think the the issue here is that um if you are going to church, if you're reading scripture, you are that you are actively experiencing these things all the time, and that ends up over time building up your your body of lifetime experience, and then it, it in itself also is giving you the the tools to interpret that that religious practice as well as all the other stuff that life chucks at you. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. When my father was dying uh, at the end of his life, he once made the comment. Uh, I've often been unfaithful to God, but God has always been faithful to me. And I don't think that was just pious talk at the end of his life. I think he was in a mode of reflection on on his experience in life. And he could honestly testify to the faithfulness of God in his journey. I think that's what Cherry, that kind of interpretation of life experience is what what Cherry's talking about, and the fact that it is cumulative through the course of a Christian life, right? Right, right. 
Yeah, I think it would be great if everybody could could end in their dying days being able to make that confession of faith. And you know, Dad, I actually I think a lot of the time the problem is never the positive experience. It's it's the absence of the positive experience that's the problem. So I don't think anyone you know who isn't you know bitter in their soul would object to a deathbed confession of faith. You know, I've been unfaithful to God, but God's never been unfaithful to me. the The bigger problem is the person who hasn't experienced. That for all there or the church's efforts to make them experience it. Or I think the problem people have with miracles is not that they do happen, but all the times they don't happen. Right. But I don't think we're talking about something like that. I really don't. I think that, I think that uh, if I'm understanding uh, Chari's uh, uh, position correctly, the the doctrines the worship the scripture the and and so forth and all the ways these are mediated by individual and group processes all of this is productive of the experience which confesses uh, i've been unfaithful to god but god has never been unfaithful to me it it produce it produces that experience because the interpretation is itself an experience, and it's it's a cumulative. It's it's a feedback loop that now, of course, the same process can lead to all sorts of illusions. I suppose uh, if we take it sociologically or psychologically, but that's uh, that means that we have to be very clear about what is Christian about Christian theological experience. Right. Yeah, and Cherry also makes the good points that um, although experience was reflected upon more explicitly as theological source or method with the rise of experimental science, there has always there have always been pastoral and spiritual writings and traditions passed down through the history of the church, where exactly, you know, like a, a lot of like the stories that we even tell in our podcast were kind of like creating this this, this oral Torah of experience right. of things that we encounter in people so that we know how to deal with them the next time we encounter them or to help other people figure that out when they encounter it. So there's this kind of, you're right, it, it, she said it's productive of Christian doctrine, but also of Christian spiritual practice and Christian pastoral care to always be engaging and reflecting on and, and feeding them back through the doctrine again to, to figure out how to deal with it. So The great, the great Athanasius wrote the great treatise on the life of St. Anthony. We ought to do a podcast on that sometime. That, that's a hoot. <laughs> We did. We did talk about it a little bit in our Athanasius episode back in the first year, so I'll put a link to it. Okay, the other book I want to mention uh, before we close out here is by another Anglican, Simeon Zoll. We talked about his book on Christoph Blumhardt last year that we both really liked, um, especially because Blumhardt spent so much time on the the problem of negative spiritual experience and also the des- the fatuous desire for positive spiritual experience that he felt was kind of the degeneration of his his father's great healing ministry. So kind of, of building on what he learned from that Zal in this wonderful book, The Holy Spirit and Christian Experience, um, 
basically makes the argument that when we're talking experience, what we're really talking about is pneumatology. And we need to be much more explicit about talking about experience within the realm of the Holy Spirit. And he, in the first half of the book, he, he kind of calls out attempts to dodge the question of experience um, in two ways. One, he talks about how there's been a trend away from justification by faith as a pillar doctrine towards something like participation in God. Um, and he he names some names. You can read the book if you want to name those names. But what he finds is there is a persistent refusal ever to talk about what that actually looks like in a <laughs> lived life, an actually experienced Christian life. That there's just like, well, we participate in God, but never, never anything more than that. Uh, he also criticizes um, optimistic or simplistic views of religious success that he uh, associates a little bit more with um, a certain kind of Catholic spiritual tradition, which says, you know, we cooperate with God. So here are the things you do and you do this and then it'll be fine. You know, you will you'll be living <laughs> in God's life. And for both of these, he just his, his real the meat of his critique is that what does this have to do with anything <laughs> with anyone's actual lived life? Um, and then from there, he moves into um, the the assertion an assertion about the affective content of doctrine. And so against um, so many dissings of doctrine as being irrelevant actually to feelings or experience, he draws on the traditions of Augustine, Luther, and Melanchthon and shows how all of them, as you've often said, Dad, when they talk about regeneration, something actually happens. And <laughs> there is an, a, a whole person response to the good news. Um, but then at the very end, Zoll goes back to talking about uh, even even a, a strong affirmation of the Augustinian Lutheran tradition um, has to deal with uh, what's known as spiritual mediocrity, <laughs> how, how <laughs> resistant sin is to even the most powerful transformations of the gospel and the importance of taking that into account too, especially against these participation or optimistic models of um, of the spiritual life. Aha. Uh -huh. So the experience of the divided self, according to Romans 7. Thank you, Simeon Zoll. <laughs> no, I like that very much. And let me just make a quick comment to connect the notion of participation to the idealism that I was criticizing earlier. Now, you know, um, it's not necessarily true that participation reflects theological idealism, but it, I think it's a correlation that's highly positive. And this is simply the idea that God is up in heaven being God, and therefore everything on the earth is some kind of analogy to God being God. And so when we connect with the um, analogies of God's being, uh, that are available to us in creaturely ways, we participate in God's causality. Big whooping deal. This is what <laughs> Luther actually said about all our experience, even the bad stuff being driven by God's creativity, which does not suspend the laws of gravity or the second law of thermodynamics just because a bad guy picks up a knife to attack and murder somebody else. No, the this is just this uh, to me. This is just silly to make a big argument about participating in God when all you're really doing is saying God is the first cause, 
behind all the secondary causes, and we participate in the secondary causes. Therefore, we participate at some distance in God. And I think Simeon Zoll is right to attack that. And I mentioned at the beginning Sarah Luther's interest in the interest in the mystical theology tradition, and this is exactly what he was getting at: the effective content of Christian doctrine, how it uh, uh, it it forms the whole human being and captures uh, the captivated desire of lost human beings and redirects them to proper loves of God and neighbor. And I think that, to me, is the meat and heart of the Christian ministry, which is communicating the truth about God as taught in the doctrines in a way that captivates the heart and imagination and thereby begins modestly, slowly, probably, to transform the, the life Right. The transformation of life is, in this life, is a beginning. It's not completed until the last day. All right. I think that's all. And so Christian experience is lifelong. It's from baptism day to resurrection day. And so we can't simply, this is the big error of the born-again theology that you can date it once and for all and then secure it as a possession. It's also, by the way, let me remind you, my criticism of a certain use of, of, of infant baptism in, in, in uh, the Lutheran tradition, that it's, it's, uh, it's like an insurance policy that you can pay for the premium once and for all, and that's that. It's a, to me, it's the same kind of misunderstanding that we live our lives in ongoing encounter with God in all that we think, do, feel, and experience. You know, I had the insight recently in, in teaching catechism class. Um, a lot of the people who, who come to my congregation right now have come out of um, a Christian formation that is very leaves them very worried about their status before God, if they are loved by God, if how many technicalities are there whereby they can lose their salvation forever or other people can. And, um, you know, this is quite far from my previous experience of, of people. And um, But as I, I'm sort of processing it, uh, it occurs to me that as terrifying as damnation might be, at least in this kind of way of thinking about the faith, you remain in control. But how much more terrifying if you simply have to accept the fact that God has you now in his hands lovingly, but who intends your sanctification. And therefore, you have no control over what's going to happen to you <laughs> in life, but also by God as he goes about his business of sanctifying you. And I think that actually there is a way of being um, nervous and even a little hysterical about the status of your salvation in order to avoid God altogether. And uh, how much more fearful a thing it is to fall into the hands of the living God and dwell <laughs> your whole life there. Jonathan Edwards to the rescue here. <laughs> very, very good, very good. But I'll tell you what, Sarah, and this is, I, I almost want to suggest, and you can edit this comment out if you don't want it, but I almost want to suggest we should do part two because there's so much material here we didn't cover. And I think it's important because part of Christian experience today is to experience the frustration of the autonomous sovereign self of modernity. Let me say that again. Genuine Christian experience today 
is frustration, divine frustration, of the autonomous, uh, self-bootstrapping, sovereign self that was dreamed up in the modern world. That today is being uh, uh, experientially defeated, experientially undermined, when its primary claim was experience. And I think we could probably do a whole episode continuing on what we've discussed today along those lines. Well, you know, I think I'm going to accept you on that offer because I was just, I'm already reflecting on my experience of recording this episode and a little bit ruefully remembering how often I have said to you that People enjoy podcasts better when we are thinking out loud and struggling to understand something together rather than reporting what we already feel very confident about regarding the material. And um, you often are more frustrated by this than I than I am, but I was definitely at the edge in this episode. (laughs) (laughs) This thing has completely gotten away from us. We knew it would be unwieldy, but it's even unwieldier than I thought it would be. So... um, (laughs) So uh, it seems only fair play, I guess, at this point. Yeah, we we better keep going. And what we were going to do next time on the show, we will save for the episode after that. Very good. I'll see you then. I'm going to see how much experience I can pack into the coming week. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.